welcome everyone to the Spoken Nerd, the podcast about database technology. I'm your host, Connor McDonald, and the first thing I should probably say, of course, is Happy New Year. Hope you had a fantastic 2023 and you're primed and ready for some cool database content coming via any form of social media channels in 2024. I must admit, I've been a bit lax on the podcast over 2023, just a lot of other things got in the way and so it got sacrificed a bit, but hopefully this year I'll try push an episode out at least once every month. Because I did fall a bit behind when it came to keeping the podcast frequency up to date, a number of questions had come in about some of my older episodes, which I never got round to addressing, and I thought I would cover one of those things in today's episode. So today we're back on table spaces. In a previous podcast, we spoke about dictionary managed table spaces, how they evolved to become locally managed table spaces, the concept of automatic undo, in-memory fast start, more a description of the evolution of table spaces into a bit more of a modern usage, and how they appear in modern versions of the database. In this episode, there are two things that we could call addenda to the original podcast episode. In the first one, I mentioned a white paper by Juan Luisa, How to Stop Defragmenting and Start Living. A number of people said, can I have a link to that? Can I read it, etc.? Can you go over what was so groundbreaking about it in the time? So I thought I'd cover that off in this episode. The second thing is, I had a number of people respond to the original podcast saying, that's all well and good to tell me how the technology has evolved in terms of table spaces management. But what does that mean in terms of how we should use them? How many table spaces should I have? How should I arrange my data in them, etc.? Has that evolved over time? So I thought we'd spend some time talking about that as well. Let's begin with some background that led to perhaps Juan's paper and why it was such a groundbreaking document for the database community. If you had a chance to listen to my first episode on table spaces in the podcast, you will recall that the issue really stemmed from the fact that we managed the allocation of space in the database with two internal dictionary tables. They were called UET$, used extent table, and FET$, free extent table. That is what the term dictionary managed meant. We managed the space in a table space with tables in the dictionary. We later moved to locally managed table spaces, but let's stay steeped back in the history here of Oracle. If either of those tables got very large, then the allocation of space became an issue because you are searching through a very large structure in order to find the appropriate free space extents in order to allocate new extents for existing tables or create brand new tables. Where perhaps our DBA community strayed from the correct path were the inferences they made from this issue. If a large number of entries in FET$ and UET$ were causing performance problems, then ideally we should have less entries in there. Thus, if I have a table with 10 extents, it would be better for that table to have less extents, say 5. And of course, if a table has 5 extents, then it's better for it to have 3 extents. And if you are familiar with the term proof by induction, which is a mathematical concept, the theory was that we could extend that ad infinitum to come up with an argument that every single object in your database should be in a single extent. And this was a commonly held belief way back in the Oracle 7, Oracle 6 timeframe. The consequence of this belief is that whenever you're building an object, you would want to choose a storage allocation that would put this object in a single extent. There were numerous 
spreadsheets floating around in the day where you would type in the number of rows and the rate of growth and all these sort of calculations to come up with a very precise idea of exactly how big a table or an index would be. The result of this was we would very carefully specify the initial extent size on every single object. So certain tables would have an extent size of 13 megabytes if that's what we thought the final size of that table would be. Others would be 61 megabytes, others would be 127 and so forth. Because somewhere we had read that we want to keep the number of extents low, we jumped to the conclusion that every table would have a single extent and we chose a size in order to try achieve this. Of course, this was somewhat of a fallacy because the moment you dropped the table or truncated the table, you would free up these randomly sized pieces of free space, which would then go into your FET dollar, UET dollar table and create more problems than they were inclined to solve. Yes, your FET dollar table now has less rows, but now every time you asked for a brand new extent, which was some random size, you had this issue. Your FED dollar table might have a 61 megabyte free space object and a 27 megabyte free space object, but you're looking for a 74 megabyte size free space object. That's a problem because I can't find that particular size. Even more frustrating might be you might have a 61 megabyte free space adjacent to a 27 megabyte free space chunk. Therefore, the sum total of that is plenty to hold your 70 megabyte extent, but you can't actually get that space. We actually made some changes to the database with the SMON background process back in the day to search the table and coalesce adjacent free space objects because we didn't want to create a situation where there was sufficient free space in the table space, but you couldn't allocate it. Similarly, DBAs in those times would often spend countless weekends using old style export and import, there was no data pump in those days, to unload tables that have more than one extent and reload them back into the table with a single extent. There was even a parameter on the export command called compress equals y. That had nothing to do with compression as we know it today. That was all about compressing the number of extents. We would work out the total sum of each extent and come up with a new initial extent sizing clause to guarantee the table would be reloaded with a single extent. So hopefully that sets the scene as to why Juan Luiz's paper was a radical departure to the thinking of the day. Juan's paper, How to Stop Defragmenting and Start Living, a reference to the fact that most DBAs had spent so many weekends doing defragmentation tasks. Anyone fairly young listening to the call today probably knows Juan Luiza as a very high up senior executive inside Oracle Corporation. And therefore, you might be thinking, oh, he's just sort of someone at the management level without much technical background. But he's a techie at heart. He's been involved in the architecture and building of the Oracle database from its inception. And so he was very familiar with the internals of the Oracle database. His document came up with this interesting acronym. He called it the SAFE acronym, the Simple Algorithm for Fragmentation Elimination. And it was a bizarre proposal to many of us who were working in the database field at the time. His proposal was the antithesis of a single extent for every single object. His was that every single extent in a table space should be the same size. You could think of it as the forerunner to locally managed table spaces that we see today. I'll put a link in the show notes for the full paper. I'd encourage you to go have a read and see what it was like. But in a nutshell, 
he had some interesting concepts. One was if the table space will have a definition for how big each extent will be in the table space, then you should not ever nominate a storage clause at the table or index level. They should always default to that of the table space. The theory here was it's not necessarily about the number of extents an object has. The concept here was all about that if every single object in a table space has the same extent size, then every time you drop a table, every time you truncate a table, every time you rebuild an index, the extents that will be freed up will be identical to the extents that you want to claim. Therefore, even though our FET dollar table might contain more rows than we would normally expect, the very first row you search for will always be an extent of the correct size because every extent is the same size in the table space. Now, this doesn't mean that every table space should have the same extent size. If I'm planning a five terabyte table, then having a 64 kilobyte extent size is perhaps not the best option. You're still gonna get into tens or hundreds of thousands of extents. And let's remember that in these days, those extents were managed in the dictionary. So one proposed that you should have a fixed set of sizes and choose table spaces that belong to those sizes. For small objects, they would go into a table space where the fixed size was 160 kilobytes. For medium-sized tables, they would go into a table space with a fixed extent size of 5,120 kilobytes. And for massive tables, they would go into a table space where the fixed extent size was 160 megabytes. For me, I find those selections quite interesting. The 160 megabytes, I don't really have a problem with in the sense that the Oracle database never reads more than a megabyte at a time, given its IO size. There's a internal constant which says every time I'm going to read data via a full scan, the most I could ever read would be a single extent or up to one megabyte. I don't think that has changed for many decades. What I do find more interesting is the 160K. I'm not sure why that size was chosen. It seems to me, for no real justification, that a binary value generally seems the most obvious one, like why not 128K? And if I needed to read 128K in multiple chunks, then eventually I would get to a megabyte. The reasoning for that is perhaps lost in time, although I'll do my best to reach out to one and see if he remembers why those sizes were chosen. Another interesting thing in that document was the fact that one proposed a very innovative solution to the handling of undo and temporary data. He proposed we should have a dedicated table space just for our undo and a dedicated table space just for our temporary segments. This gives you an idea of how the general thinking was at the time. In those days, you could have undo segments and temporary segments in any table space and they could be intermixed with your normal real data and indexes. It was many years later that the concept of an undo table space and a dedicated temporary table space came to being. Juan's proposal was perhaps the forerunner to those decisions coming automatically in the Oracle database. That brings us on to the second thing I wanted to discuss in today's episode, namely, because of Juan's proposals in his technical paper, the choosing of how many table spaces you would have in a database was somewhat defined by the technology as opposed to the logical use cases. If one was proposing three different fixed extent sizes, by definition, you would have at least three table spaces. One that reflected small extent sizes, the 160K, one that reflected medium sizes, and one that reflected large sizes. 
So at least three table spaces you're going to have in your database. The second thing you would typically see is a lot of DBAs in the time would have two table spaces to separate data, i.e. tables, from indexes. The justification for this was, once again, it was a very different time. And just about every single backup concept for a database of those days was onto a tape. Therefore, if you ever had to recover your database, then it would be a slow, long-winded process to go either get the tapes, typically from off-site, or even get those tapes mounted in your data center, and then they were very slow to recover information off them. In such cases, it might be more efficient to simply recover just the data and then rebuild the indexes using the server itself. That might be faster than recovering indexes off tape. So one justification for separating data in indexes was to hopefully improve recovery time. The other justification was these were times when the concepts that we're familiar with today, it's like striping, mirroring, volume management, some very high-end customers might have had that in their data centers back in those days, but most did not. Most of us had physical disk drives, daisy-chan with SCSI port connectors onto our servers. We had a term called JBOD, just a bunch of disks. If you wanted to try get the best utilization from multiple disks, then that was your problem as a DBA. You would choose data files and data file locations to get the best utilization of all your disks. And so if you wanted to carefully spread the IO load of data and indexes across multiple disks, you would do that with multiple table spaces because that's how you would align the table spaces and objects to particular data files. As a result, it was not uncommon to see dozens of different table spaces used for a database solely to address the underlying technical challenges. You would have small, medium, and large, and each of those sizes would have a data and index component. Thankfully, the concept of choosing table spaces solely based on the underlying technology is pretty much a thing of the past. Most IT professionals that are managing a database nowadays, when their server is presented with what the server believes is a disk, in reality, it's probably a multitude of disks all presented via some logical volume manager or an underlying storage array, which in itself may be masking the actual physical components underneath it. This is very cool for us as modern DBAs because that leads on to the second part of this podcast, which is if we don't need to worry about the underlying technology, what is perhaps the best usage then for table spaces when it comes to defining how many table spaces we're going to have and what objects we should put within them? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that no matter what your underlying technology is, you can happily just ignore it and mix and match whatever volumes you have available to your server for table spaces. For example, I would not have a table space that is sitting on top of a data file which has a mix of flash and conventional spinning disk on it. Those dramatically different performance profiles would create all sorts of interesting variability in response times from I.O. However, even that you could perhaps argue is not a table space issue, more a volume manager issue. Anyone that's creating volumes with a mix of flash and conventional disk in a single volume, unless the actual volume management software has some smarts to know about the differences in performance profiles, it's generally not such a good idea. But putting obvious things like that aside, table spaces now are much more about just what is the best logical layout of my objects in table spaces. And let's start with the simplest of 
all layouts, which is let's just have one table space. That often rings alarm bells for DBAs who have been around for as long as I have, but let's look at the best example of that, which is the autonomous offerings that we have. If you're running autonomous transaction processing or autonomous data warehouse, then out of the box, you're presented with a single table space called data for everything. As we've seen with the thousands of autonomous customers out there, that's gonna be just fine. That data is being spread across a multitude of disks, all managed by ASM. We get the best of mirroring and striping, and we simply throw all our stuff into a single table space called data, and until that table space gets too large, we don't need to create more. For the great many use cases of Oracle databases, that's probably gonna be just fine. However, there are some opportunities that you might want to exploit when it comes to picking your table space setup, but I keep stressing, this is all about the logical setup. Come up with things that are gonna match your business requirements as opposed to technological requirements. So the first thing, for example, is the old days of separating data and index. I really struggle to see a need for that ever anymore. And if you disagree, I would love to hear your thoughts via comments or reach out to me on Twitter. I know some people still adhere to a policy of separating data and indexes via table spaces, but I really struggle to see the need. For a while, I used to think that maybe transportable table spaces might be a justification for that, but what happens is the database goes and makes sure that when you're transporting a table space set, that you have a logically complete set, and it's not going to let you transport just the data without the indexes, and therefore the concept of having separation in table spaces there doesn't make a lot of sense. But there are other opportunities that might warrant multiple table spaces. An obvious one is schema level separation. Databases and servers now are so big and so powerful that it's not uncommon to have multiple schemas for multiple different applications in the single database. I know we have pluggable databases to address that also via a different mechanism, which by definition would mean separate table spaces because they're not shared across pluggables, but inside a single pluggable, it's not uncommon to have schema separation. In those cases, I'd be inclined to have a table space per schema. The reason that could be useful is it's often the case that people want to clone a particular schema from one database to another. For example, we're refreshing production back to test or test back to development, etc. Now we could do that cloning with something like data pump, export import, but often if those schemas are quite large, a much faster way is to clone those schemas using transportable table space or some sort of RMAN level facility, both of which operate on the table space level. So having a separate table space for each schema gives that nice separation that lets transportable table space facilities become useful for you. The second example you might want to consider is when it comes to the concept of historical data. If you're using partition tables to have large volumes of data separated into more manageable chunks, there can be some value in having table spaces that separate the historical data from the current data. The reason for that is you can set those historical table spaces to be read-only should that be an appropriate operation for your historical data if it's never getting any updates. The benefit of having read-only table spaces is you don't have to back them up with every single backup because the database knows that by definition, no changes have occurred. Also, read-only table spaces could be put onto different media. 
you may choose to move your older data onto different data files that are perhaps, for example, a greater capacity but slower to access in order to cut costs. Having that separation of current data from historical data can be useful because of the different performance requirements that are often associated with old versus new data. Another opportunity to think about is how often you think you might need to issue a recover table command. We all know as DBAs, we can recover a database, we can recover a table space, but in more recent versions of Oracle, we have a native recover table command in Recovery Manager. While the syntax is very simple, I simply say, here's a table that I've corrupted or I've lost, I want to recover it to a certain point in time. Behind the scenes, we don't have a native table recovery concept. The way it works is Armand does all the heavy lifting in terms of what do I need to do with a normal standard recovery in order to get just that one table back? To get a table, what would we need? Well, I would need its definition, which means I would need to recover the system table space. I also need the actual table space the table sits in, so I need to recover that table space. And then to get just the table out of that table space, I would use something like data pump to go get it out of the table space and import it. Under the covers, when you issue a recover table command, the database is going to do into an auxiliary or temporary sort of database. It's going to recover the system table space. It's going to recover the table space that that table sits in, potentially multiple table spaces if the table is partitioned, and then data pump export import that table into your true database. If your database was massive and sat solely in one massive table space, then recover table is effectively the same as doing recover the entire database because I need that single table space which pretty much holds everything in your database to be recovered to find that one table. If you're worried about the time that would take, then yes, you might want to consider having more than one table space. In fact, having many table spaces with relevant subsets of tables split across those table spaces in order to rapidly improve the recover table logistics. I would probably want to see additional justification for that many table spaces besides just recover table, because if you're issuing a recover table a lot of times, the question needs to be asked, what processes do you have in place that are allowing tables to get either lost or dropped or corrupted? That's probably the root cause that you need to be addressing. And one other place where choosing multiple table spaces might be a benefit, and this sounds somewhat counterintuitive, is where you have space limits on your database. And in particular, I'm referring to Express Edition or our database free. If you have just one big table space, then as that table space gets full and approaches the 12 gigabyte size limit, then it becomes perhaps somewhat complicated to find free space in that table space. You might need to do a lot of database reorganization. You might choose to try improve upon that scenario by having multiple table spaces. A good example would be the installation of Apex into Express Edition goes into the SysAux tablespace by default. For something like Express Edition, I would be inclined to have a dedicated tablespace for the version of Apex I'm installing, let's say it's 23.1. When 23.2 comes along, I would install that into its own tablespace for 23.2, because then I know that when I've migrated everything over, I can simply drop that old Apex tablespace, the 23.1, and immediately reclaim that space. If everything was in the SysAux table space, then I've got a bit of a sort of a smattering of Apex 23.1, some 23.2, along with other internal dictionary schemas that use SysAux as well. That's a little bit more difficult to clean up.
And finally, a switch in my thinking that I've come across just recently, which is every table space you should create, you should create as a big file table space, independent of how large you think that table space needs to be. Now, that might seem a little bit strange. Why would I create every table space as a big file if I have no need for table spaces that are massive? This is due to a constraint that's coming in Oracle Database 23C. You are able to shrink a table space where the database will automatically relocate segments that are up near the high watermark back down toward the front of the data files in order to overall shrink the size of the database. But this facility only works with big file. If the facility becomes extended to work with small files as well, then I would adjust my position on this. But that is a useful facility to have, especially if you're in a space-constrained environment like Express Edition. But even in a normal environment, there's nothing more frustrating than having a table space which is 100 gigabytes in size simply because you've got some segments floating around up near the 100 gigabyte mark in your data files and you've got heaps of free space sitting around underneath the 100 gigabyte mount that is never going to be reused. It's a lot easier to have the database relocate those segments than you having to write your own data pump export import facilities and taking large outages, etc. Hopefully that completes the treatment of table spaces to your satisfaction. Once again, feel free to use the show notes to find a link to Juan's document. And I'd encourage you to reach out to me on Twitter or other social media if you have some differing ideas on how table space management should be done. Luckily, most of the challenge with table space management about technology in terms of extent sizes, performance, allocation are all long since gone by the wayside. Table space selection is purely about what is the best logical setup for your business requirements to get the most out of your database. Hence, podcast number one for 2024 is done. I'll be back with more podcasts throughout the year. I'm going to keep that frequency higher or I'll do my absolute best to and we'll try to get some more guests on as well so we can have a bit more back and forth. I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to this.